Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning recognizing our need for you in really every possible way that we can imagine and in even ways we don't think about enough. We are dependent upon you, and so we come just pleading with you to give us what we need this very day to please you, to honor you, to glorify you. And Lord, as we join together for the last time for EQ Women uh, for this first year, Lord, we especially come uh, both recognizing our, our needy, our neediness, our dependence, but also come with just hearts of gratitude and thankfulness for what you have accomplished this last year, what you've allowed us to participate in, the work that you've done. As we consider Philippians 1.6 and what we know to be true about you and your character and your nature, that you, Lord, are faithful to complete the work that you start and you conform us more into Christ's likeness over time. These things are immeasurable gifts that we could never uh, rightly or deeply uh, express our gratitude for, and yet, Lord, we, we attempt to even now, and we again just praise you and thank you. Lord, I pray that that gratitude and that thankfulness would be rooted out of love that would lead us to press on even more uh, this morning as we look at your word and we renew our minds with your promises. Lord, I pray that they would be uh, a foundation of truth in our hearts and our minds that would help stay us in the midst of life's various circumstances, that we would be uh, increasingly more useful for you, and Lord, that we would worship you and glorify you with our lives as we, as we seek to be holy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, persevering. This is our last EQ of the year, uh, which is uh, sweet and encouraging and sad and maybe even a little refreshing to have Saturday mornings uh, not occupied for the summer. Um, but it's, it's exciting to think of what the Lord has done this last year and just to reflect and give thanks. And as we begin this morning, we're going to be talking about the promises of God. We ended semester one talking about the promises of God. We're going to do the same this semester and kind of do our part two on the promises of God. But before we jump into that, I want to talk just a little bit about EQ. As we finish up the first year, EQ uh, was something that I put together alongside of the elders, alongside of Tom and, and Tyler, in thinking through uh, Ephesians 4 and the church's call to equip the saints for the work of ministry and that the pastor teacher's role is to participate in that. And we've, uh, those who have come from Grace Bible Church have benefited immensely from the elders' efforts there with Build and Wellspring and the Trust and so on to, uh, to really go after equipping the saints with what it looks like to shepherd your heart. What does it look like? What are the core Christian disciplines that God calls the Christian to in order to pursue a life of faithfulness? And Grace Bible Church has done that so well. And we wanted to really pick up the mantle and keep on with that at Gilbert Bible Church and thinking through what that would look like for uh, both men and women who have gone through build maybe half a dozen times and new participants, new members of Gilbert Bible Church who are, who are being exposed to some of these disciplines for the very first time. And so what we put together was EQ, and it's a, a two-year, as we remember, curriculum that's going to just keep rotating through where each of us is exposed to biblical truths regarding Christian disciplines of, of life. And 
when we were putting together curriculum, we kind of had a, a couple different choices. One is take disciplines one, the heart, discipline two, the home, discipline three, ministry, as well as other biblical doctrines and and theology and, and other practices of just Christian life in regards to repentance and marriage and parenting. And do we just take one of those at a time or do we cycle through these things, kind of touching on them and laying a foundation over time of these different disciplines? We chose uh, the first John approach, circular approaching of these disciplines. So instead of spending five lessons on the heart and then five lessons on the home, we thought, okay, let's just cycle through these disciplines. And then as men and women are able to participate and join in, they get exposed to these things. And it's been wonderful to watch the fruit of that, even this first year. And uh, before we talk about that a little bit more, I just want to remind us of really the purpose of EQ. What are we going after uh, with EQ? And, it, and it's this, it's to disciple, equip, and encourage the men and women of Gilbert Bible Church to grow in deeper love for God in obedience to Jesus Christ and faithfulness in their homes and in the body of Christ in order that God might be glorified by the ever-increasing holiness and usefulness of his people. That's a, that's a long summary statement and, and maybe I'll work to trim it down, but that's the best I could get. That's the best I could get to try to capture all that we're going for here. And if you want this, I'd be happy to send it out to you guys so that you can can have it as well. But I'll, I'll say it again, to disciple, the purpose of EQ is to disciple, equip, and encourage the men and women of Gilbert Bible Church to grow in deeper love for God in obedience to Jesus Christ and faithfulness in their homes and in the body of Christ that God might be glorified by the ever-increasing holiness and usefulness of his people. And, and we know, as we've looked at in the past, that our usefulness for Christ's sake is actually tied to our personal holiness. And so I want to encourage you guys and remind you, ladies, that your investment in being here and pouring into one another's lives and interacting with the various topics and texts and lessons, that it's not without purpose. It's not without a goal in mind. And ultimately, the goal is to glorify God. And that comes through the body being equipped for the work of ministry. Gilbert Bible Church needs the men of Gilbert Bible Church to be saturated with God's word, to be concerned with what God's concerned with, and to be faithful as they practice and engage and interact for the sake of building up the body in love. And Gilbert Bible Church absolutely needs the women of Gilbert Bible Church to do the same. And what's been so encouraging is just to watch how uh, so many have persisted in participation and continued to seek to grow and serve and engage in the fruit that has been born of that in Gilbert Bible Church so quickly is just really encouraging. And so this purpose statement to, to ultimately see God glorified through our increasing holiness and usefulness, well, how do we do this? We do this by working through NEQ, biblical fundamentals of the primary Christian disciplines pertaining to their heart, home, and involvement within the local church, as well as covering various key doctrines and Christian practices as prescribed from scripture. And so what we find is that these things that we're covering this year and what we'll be covering next year as well, they're foundational. They're, they're foundational, foundational or fundamental, not as in something that we have to get through so that we can get on to something else, but in regards to the reality that competency or faithfulness and the things that we've been covering and will continue to cover, these areas, they'll enhance every aspect of the Christian life. 
Every part of the Christian life is enhanced when we are faithful to shepherd our own hearts and to learn more and more what that means and what that looks like. And, and definitely through an intentional quiet time, but not exclusively through that, right? We're, we're seeing that shepherding our hearts through life's various circumstances is is aided through intentional devotion time with the Lord, but that's not the entirety of it. That's just the beginning, which breeds into a continual heart shepherding that's to take place and so on with shepherding our homes and participating in ministry. And so what we find is that as we have a robust understanding of God's word and of God's nature and of God's character and of God's promises and of what it looks like to repent of sin and what it looks like to reconcile broken relationships and what it looks like to be faithful in our parenting and what it looks like to be faithful in our husbanding and wifing or however you would say that. <laughs> as it looks, as, it, as, as we learn what these things look like, they're, that it's actually laying a foundation of faithfulness that enhances our godliness and our usefulness for the body of Christ. And so just even reflecting as, as we uh, have covered this first year, we've looked at bibliology, we've covered the new man worksheet, what has God done taking us from an unmixed condition to this current mixed condition and the anticipation of, a, again, an unmixed uh, position, but whereas our original unmixed was unmixed unto sin, our future unmixed will be unmixed unto glory. We've talked about ecclesiology. Who can tell me what ecclesiology is the study of? Church, excellent, good job, all right. You passed the test, which means I passed the test and instructing you, so that's good, that's encouraging. It's like when uh, all your students fail in a class, that's like the main sign that the teacher was the failure. Yeah, okay. Maybe that's just how I rationalize my poor grades in school. That's no. Uh, we looked at the attributes of God, roles in the home, serving in the church, parenting, promises of God, Bible reading and prayer, repentance and fighting sin, fear of the Lord. And just think how God might use us to grow future ministries at Gilbert Bible Church as we persist in faithfulness of these things. Uh, I think it's important to remember that our involvement in the local church is not singular in mind. Our, our involvement is not just for us. But God's intention is to build each one of us up individually to equip us so that we can participate in building one another up. And there's an element where there's a, a right humility that would say, but who am I? I know myself. God, really, I don't think God, I don't think I'm that important. God's not really going to use me. And there, there, there's probably elements of that that's a, an appropriate humility, but that needs to be tempered with the fact that Christ lives in you. And Christ has supernaturally gifted you with the spirit of God to be useful in the body of Christ. And so while recognizing, yeah, I, I'm not a big deal and I'm a critical part of the local church that God uses for the building up of his body and I need to be faithful and allow God to use me as he intends. Uh, participating in, in body life and church ministries only enhances that. And so it's encouraging, exciting to think how God is gonna use this, uh, this first year ministry of Gilbert Bible Church that undoubtedly will be refined and tweaked and changed and adjusted and grown and strengthened. But to think of how God is gonna use that down the road and use your faithfulness and participation down the road as we uh, even get through this first year. And so uh, thank you and um, keep pressing on. We'll see how God continues to, to use this ministry in all of our lives. We're going to step into our lesson. Everybody should have received an outline on your way in, should have grabbed one. 
And we are on Discipline 1, Shepherding My Heart with the Promises of God, Part 2. Does everybody have an outline for that this morning? Excellent. All right, I want to start with just a brief review. We went through this lesson. If you weren't here for the first part, we went through this lesson. It's Semester 1, Lesson 7. It was the last lesson of, this, of the fall semester. And... Uh, and we did a little bit more in depth on what we must know about the promises of God, but I want to review just a little bit by way of reminder what we must know about the promises of God, and then we're going to look at some additional promises of God this morning that we can shepherd our hearts with. So as we've been looking at in Philippians, even this last week, we know that what we think is crucially important to how we live. How we live our lives is directly impacted by our thinking, what we believe, what we're convinced of. And in fact, what we truly believe, it will reflect itself in how we live. And so knowing God's promises and believing God's promises and entrusting ourselves to God's promises as we know them and believe them will have a significant impact on how we live our lives and how we navigate life's various circumstances. And so before we even look at the promises of God, we need to consider what do we believe about the promises of God? What do we know? What must we know about the promises of God that will allow God's promises to have his intended impact in our lives? Well, first of all, we must know that God's promises are trustworthy. We were looking at 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 before as we considered these promises of God. And go ahead and turn there just by way of reminder to first, uh, rather, 2 Peter 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge, again, there's that knowing, of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, the them is his precious and magnificent promises, by his promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lusts. God has given to us his promises for our edification, so that we can grow in our partaking of his divine nature. We become more godly as we embrace his promises and truly know and believe his promises. And we must know this about God's promises to us, that they have divine intention. And we'll talk about that in just a moment as we look more at the fact that they're purposeful. But first we must understand that these promises of God are trustworthy. And they're trustworthy, namely because they're given from God. God is the source of God's promises. Big surprise. That's not earth-shattering to ponder. But it is earth-shattering when you consider the character and nature of God. The reason that God's promises coming from God, being sourced from God, is significant is because God is supremely trustworthy. God does not lie. God is righteous in all his ways. Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is blameless. He does no wrong. He does no wrong was not in the Bible. It, it is, but that's not Psalm 1830. Psalm 1830 says, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. That's tested. It, it's approved. It's demonstrated as genuine or good or sincere. 
He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Numbers 23:19 God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not make it good that is God's character he does not lie he doesn't repent why would God never repent isn't it a virtuous thing to repent well clearly he would never repent even though it's a virtuous thing to repent because he never does wrong There's never something he needs to repent of. There's no direction. There's no instruction that was misguided. We have those moments. Uh, You may tell a child, do this. Oh, actually, don't do that. I misspoke, or I said something wrong, or I didn't understand the situation fully. God never misspeaks. He never doesn't understand the situation fully. He never gives misguided direction. All his ways are right. God is supremely trustworthy. And we must understand that about God's promises, that the source of those promises is God himself. And so we can entrust ourselves to God's promises with confidence, with assurance that it's what is right. What he says and what will come about is right and good and trustworthy. If God says he will do something, we don't have to question, I really hope he comes through here, right? That that happens frequently in the home you ask your children to do something clean up your bedroom i really hope they remember to clean up their bedroom oh i forgot i got distracted we do that god never does that god always is faithful also god's promises as i said just a moment ago are purposeful he has intention we saw that in second peter 1 4 when he says for by these that is his promises or or for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them his precious and magnificent promises we may become partakers of the divine nature god has divine purpose of your increasing sanctification your increasing spiritual maturity or growth being spiritual growing out of his promises God intends his promises to have a sanctifying impact in the believer's life. And this is absolutely important when we think about our spiritual growth. How often do you think, man, I really want to grow. I really want to mature. I really want to get a handle over this sin and thought, you know what, I re- you know what God's given me? You, you know a, a really significant tool in my til- tool belt to spiritual growth is his promises. What do I need to renew my mind with? pertaining to this circumstance that's going to enhance my godliness as I fight coveting, lying, anger, impatience, whatever, lack of gentleness, being harsh, whatever, whatever the, the sin may be, renewing our minds in God's promises because they're purposeful. God intends our sanctification, our growth, our participation in the divine nature, which is one of blamelessness or holiness. God desires that. The promises of God don't lead us to passivity. Well, God promised he did that, so I don't have to. They actually equip us towards confident in him, confidence in him, proactive action towards godliness. They give us confidence in our pursuit, in our efforts, in our discipline to be holy, because our hope doesn't rest within ourselves, right? The, the tendency is for us to make promises to God and to think, I'm on the right track because, listen, I'm, I told God I am never going to do that again. Well, that's not actually substantial in aiding our holiness. 
God's promises to us are far more powerful than any promise that we can make to God. And so we look to God's promises. They're to be prized, or they're purposeful. And then lastly, God's promises are to be prized. When we keep reading in 1 Peter 4, we go on to verse 5. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's intention for these things to flow out of, when you talk about the divine nature that we participate in as we rest on the promises of God. This is what flows out of that. And when you're living this way, you're rendered neither useless or what else does he say? Or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your usefulness is enhanced. Why would we not want to prize and to treasure God's promises when the outcome is a usefulness for God? Conversely, Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You've actually forgotten that you've been cleansed from your sins, that you're no longer enslaved to your sins, that you have the capacity to glorify God when you don't remind yourself of God's promises and are aided and increasing in your personal godliness. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Live out the fruit of salvation. Be able to observe that. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. God's promises are to be prized because they have a sanctifying effect on our life and render us useful for God's purposes. They grant to us an assurance of salvation as we live in light of God's promises. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Well, God's promises for the believer, these considerations that we, uh, that we take into account, they, they must have an impact on our life. We must understand the importance of God's promises, that they are trustworthy, that they are purposeful, that they're to be prized. And before we dive into the promises that we'll be looking at this morning, I just want to say a couple other things, a couple other uh, things for us to uh, take into account when, when uh, shepherding our heart with, the God's, with God's promises is, first of all, it's crucial that we know the context. We know the context of the promises of Scripture. Not every promise in Scripture is for the New Testament believer. And there is great intention and purpose for, uh, by God for the Christian in his promises that are made in his word to the Christian, but we don't want to uh, miss that or misunderstand or mishandle God's word, not handle rightly God's word by applying promises that aren't to us, uh, to us. What would be an example of that? The prayer of Jabez, okay, that's a really good example. Yes, absolutely. Prayer of Jabez. Uh, most of the promises to an individual in the Old Testament are not promises for the New Testament believer. Uh, maybe all. I'd have, to, I'd have to take each one into account. But, but promises to Israel, 
are not promises to a New Testament believer. That doesn't mean that that part of our Bible is unuseful or not beneficial. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. All scripture is important. It's not a matter of importance. It's a matter of intention. And God's intention for Old Testament promises to Israel is not for the New Testament believer to claim them as their own. What do we see? We see God's character. We see his faithfulness. We see his trustworthiness. When you see God make a promise in the Old Testament and then keep it, what does that do for your heart when you see promises in the New Testament for you? It reinforces your confidence that he's trustworthy. When you see promises to God's people that haven't come to fruition yet, you eagerly look forward to that. And you see God's character reflected through his divine care and persistence and care to his people. And so God's promises, uh, we need to know the context. We need to just ask ourselves, to whom is this promise made? And think through that as we ponder these various promises. So last time, our, our first lesson, we looked at Romans 8, 28. We talked about navigating life's various circumstances that we know all things work together for good to those who are called, in, called according to his purpose. We looked at Luke 12, 22 through 32, talked about shepherding our heart through anxiety. God provides for the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. How much more will he provide for us, his children? First Corinthians ten thirteen that God provides a way of escape through various temptations. We looked at Philippians 1.6, that the believer will be sanctified. God will be faithful to complete the work that he starts. And we looked at Philippians 3.20 and 21, that the believer's future glorification is secured. Well, this morning, we'll see how much we can get through. Um, we didn't get through all of them with the men on Thursday. Uh, and we may spend a little bit of t more time on some than others, but we're going to start by looking at wisdom from above. And so now we are transitioning to page number two, God's promises for the believer. So page two of your outline, and we will start with wisdom from above from James chapter one. And you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you'd like. Just a little, little bit to the left will be in James chapter 1. Look at verse 5 with me. James says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let, he, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It will be given to him. In James chapter 3, James actually gives the definition of wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom. Wisdom, And when we think about wisdom in general, Sophia, the word for wisdom, well, what we typically think of is a right understanding that leads to a right living. So to be wise is to have a right understanding of the situation and a wherewithal or a, or a self-control or conviction to live rightly in light of that understanding. That's typically how we think about wisdom defined. And we know the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To truly understand the world rightly, we must fear God, recognize him as God, humble ourselves before him as God. All wisdom, all right understanding flows out of that, is built upon that. But as we grow in wisdom, we have a right understanding of the circumstance and then live appropriately in light of that understanding. Well, 
in chapter 3, verse 17, James actually describes this wisdom from above, what this heavenly wisdom looks like. When he says in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is, and now he's going to give the characteristics of what this wisdom from above is. It is pure, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And in wisdom, we see the fruit of faith intersecting with the challenges of this world. We see God's working in the believer's heart flowing out of the various difficulties and challenges of the world. And when the goal is not primarily to escape life's hardships, to escape life's difficulties, to just get through the moment, but when the goal is actually to glorify God, we pursue a fruitfulness in the midst of life's various circumstances. Back to James 1, this instruction regarding asking for wisdom and God giving it generously, this promise that God will grant wisdom, it comes on the heels of the introduction to the book of James, which just launches immediately into a command, consider trials joy, all sorts of trials. And so this wisdom from above, this ability to rightly understand the circumstance and function appropriately in light of it in a manner that's pure and peaceable and reasonable and all those other virtuous reflections of wisdom, it is to be exhibited in the midst of the furnace of trials and perils and hardships. This is so helpful when we think about shepherding our heart with the promises of God. Life comes with trials. It's not instruction for the Christian. If you come across a trial, when you face various trials, consider it joy. And when you lack the ability to maintain the proper perspective of joy in the midst of trials because you know God's intention and you, and you forget that God is using it that trials aren't things happening to you as life spirals out of control, but God in his divine providence is causing all things to come to pass for his divine intention, for his glory, and for your ultimate good. When you lose that perspective, ask God, God, would you give me the wisdom that I lack to be reasonable in this moment, to be patient to endure. Would you, I know you have intention. I forgot, but I know. Would you help remind me afresh of your divine intention through my trials to make me more like Jesus and help me to be wise where I prize Christ's likeness more than any comfort, more than any ease, more than any lack of pain or hurt or sorrow or hardship? Help me to trust you. And what does he say? What do we see about God in verse 5? In those moments of brokenness and hurt and difficulty, when we aren't considering trials like joy, like we should, and we go to him and we ask, what is the promise for each one of us, for every believer? He gives to all generously without reproach. God's benevolence is, is overwhelming. 
It is the Lord's loving desire to impart divine understanding and to do so abundantly to his followers. And this has to be one of the most beautiful and comforting, encouraging promises in scripture that if we ask God for wisdom, he will actually grant it to us and he will do it generously. Generously, his supply exceeds our need. Oftentimes we feel like we're at the end of our rope. We're completely depleted. I just don't know if I can take it anymore. I don't know if I could go on with things as they are. And God says, if you ask me for wisdom, I will give it generously. He will fill our cup with wisdom until it is overflowing and cannot contain more. He does it generously. There, there are not a, a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through to gain it, to, to garner it, to earn it. Simply ask in faith and he will grant it to you. And, and he does it without reproach. He gives without hesitation, without reluctance, without reservation. Listen, when you come to him for the umpteenth time, asking him because you're struggling to find joy and perspective in the midst of your weariness and, and hardship. He doesn't rebuke you for not coming to him sooner, and he doesn't belittle you because you had to come to him again. He gives without reproach. He, he doesn't remind us of how undeserving or unworthy we are. He just gives it. He lavishes his wisdom upon us. There's... There's no uh, moment where maybe like we do with our kids where they come to you for the 20th time about the same thing. Really? You need me to show you again? You need me to tell you again? There's none of that. Every single time we come to him for help, he is eager to give us wisdom, to give us. He lavishes it upon us. But there is one condition. There's one condition that he expects and, and that he requires and it's verse six but he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind uh, there's not to be doubting as you request wisdom from god you ask in faith you must believe that god indeed will grant you the wisdom you desire to be able to respond to your trial in a sanctified god-honoring way uh, your request must be backed by genuine trust in god's character in his purposes, and his promises. And God calls us to believe in his trustworthiness, to believe that God will give us what we need to be pleasing to him in times of trial. There's not to be a, a suspicion in our heart. God, give me wisdom. He's never going to give me wisdom. No, ask. God, give me wisdom. And I know your character. This comes back to his promise. Renew your mind with the promise that his promises are trustworthy with the reality that his promises are trustworthy. God, you are trustworthy. You are good. You are faithful. You will give me what I need. And so, Lord, I ask, grant to me wisdom. And I know he's actually going to do it. I believe he will. This isn't claiming, this isn't asking in faith to claim worldly things, right? There's, there's so-called Christian denominations and sects uh, sects where they, they believe that if you ask in faith, God will grant you anything you ask. And so there's this name it and claim it. Help my trial to go away. Just ask in faith, your trial will go away. 
help my disease to go away. Well, ask in faith and God will heal you. Oh, you're not healed. You must not have enough faith, right? That's, that's, that's a wicked approach to viewing God as your Lord and Savior, that you somehow are God over God and he will do what you demand of him if you demand it strong enough. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a humble disposition of confidence in God's character that says, not you're going to change my circumstances and give me the circumstances that I want, but you're going to change me and make me more like Jesus and help me endure when I don't get what I want. You're going to help me be faithful when the affliction isn't removed. You're going to help me persevere when the trial persists. And the promise for the believer is that God will hear and he will grant your request in your time of need. Don't doubt. Don't doubt. What, what might he doubt? What might the man or woman of God doubt? That God hears your prayers, that God cares for you, that your prayers matter to God. Might doubt that prayer actually impacts things, that God would answer your request, that God is near to you in your trial, that God is using your trial to make you more like Jesus, that God will give you what you need to endure. That one who doubts, we see as a picture of instability, tossed back and forth, a a double-minded man, unstable in their ways. Sometimes we have to come to the Lord to seek help for our disbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe you're faithful, but right now I'm struggling to believe you're faithful. Help me believe all the more that you're faithful. Give me wisdom, please, to honor you, to please you. The solution is always to renew our hearts and minds with what's true about God and to step forward in faithfulness. We don't go, man, I'm really struggling in my heart with whether or not God is trustworthy right now. Therefore, I'm not going to ask God to help me believe that he's trustworthy and endure, endure godly, godliness because we don't want to ask him wrongly. Come to him, humble yourself and ask him, Lord, I'm struggling right now. And again, he, he doesn't bring reproach. Oh, man, you're just, you're not quite sincere enough in your faith. I'm going to distance myself from you. Draw near to God. Come near to him. Humble yourself before him. All right, any questions, comments on the wisdom from above before we move on. Save them all for Anne. All right, we'll keep going. Did you have a question? Nope. Okay. Next, forgiveness and cleansing. Let's turn to 1 John 1, 9. So just a little bit to the right. 1 John chapter 1. Now I don't have to shout. Thank you for turning the air off. Forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1, 9. If, and we see this conditional statement, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, that is God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here it is a confession to God. If we confess our sins, John has in mind here a confession to God. This is agreeing with God. Uh, It is absolutely important to confess our sins to one another. James 5.16 says, 
says as much, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There is a specific call for us to confess our sins to one another. Here in 1 John 1, 9 is a specific call for the Christian to confess our sins to God, to agree with God. And we're confessing our sins not because he's unaware of them. It's not as if we've sinned in secret and we need to bring God up to speed on our shortcomings and deficiencies. Rather, this is a, this is a confession to God where we are agreeing with God. We're not bringing him up to speed, but rather we're humbling ourselves before him, agreeing with him transparently and humbly. We're not chafing against him. We're not at strife with him, pushing against him, saying, no, you're wrong. Or, or we aren't with our heads in the sand saying, I think there's nothing to see here. All's good. No, we're confessing our sins and we are coming before him humbly and dependently and contritely recognizing our failure to meet his righteous standing, standard. So we confess our sin. And God forgives and cleanses. God is faithful. If we come to him with a genuine contriteness and confession regarding our sins, God is faithful. And how sweet is that? When you are unfaithful, come to God humbly, contritely, dependently, confess your sins, and he is faithful. And the consequences of your unfaithfulness, he will absorb them. Maybe not temporally, maybe not circumstantially on earth, right? There's, there's earthly circumstances to our sins that we have to navigate. But eternal circumstances, wrath, judgment, condemnation, he forgives us so we are not under condemnation. And he cleanses us. The guilt, the grossness, you know what it's like when you sin and you're like, ugh, I just, ugh, there's just this guilt upon you and this, this condemnation or weight that you feel or, or grossness that you feel. I know what I did was wrong. He cleanses you of that. That is not to persist upon the believer. The believer who confesses their sin and brings their sin to God, there is forgiveness, unending forgiveness, and purif perfect purifying cleansing that takes place of all unrighteousness. There's not a sin that you can commit that if you come to God humbly and dependently, contritely, in genuine confession, that he won't forgive, that he won't cleanse. Now, as we consider this promise, we have to remember this promise in light of the rest of 1 John. And 1 John makes very clear, right? There's a temptation. Whenever we see something like this, there's a temptation in the human heart, a uh, potential tendency to go, oh, sweet. <laughs> no matter what I do, I can just say I'm sorry and move on. Well, that misses true confession. That misses repentance that God demands of the believer. First John makes that clear repetitively that the one who practices sin, and what's really interesting in the Greek, there's different ways to formulate verbs and different ways to use various formulations of those verbs. And so when, he, when John talks about the one who sins or the one who practices sins, it's an iterative present, which means it's sins and keeps on doing it. 
keeps on over and over again. John is never saying, hey, if you sin, then you're of the Antichrist. Like if you sin once, now you're of Satan. That's never what John communicates. In fact, right in verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Anybody who says I never sin is a liar and God's truth is not in you. Um, But the genuine Christian does not sin and continue and continue and continue without confession, without remorse, without regret, without genuine repentance uh, that changes over time. This isn't describing somebody who has a vice that they work through their whole life and they're in the battle and they're in the mire and they're fighting and they're clawing and striving to grow and be sanctified and yet the progress is slower than maybe in other areas. That's not what this is describing. This is describing someone who sins and continues and regardless of what they say, their heart loves that sin and they are unwilling to let it go. That's what the First John is describing And so when we think about confession, we're not thinking about a get out of hell free card. I can live any way that I want. As long as I just go through the motion of saying some words, all will be fine. No, this is for the genuine believer who recognizes their need for Jesus, who recognizes that they're a sinner, who comes before the Lord and confesses, Lord, I agree with you. And this one is not satisfied to persist in sin. They're in the fight and they're broken, and they recognize what their sin deserves, and they confess that to the Lord. And what is God's promise for the believer? Forgiveness and cleansing. Just think about that. Think about your fight for holiness. Think about the maybe potential tendency to dwell and wallow in your own self-pity over repetitive sins. Maybe think about your apprehension that God would persist in his love for you because of your various sins. He's faithful. He forgives. He cleanses. Oh, Lord, thank you. Help that produce in me a greater love and zeal that would lead itself to a greater faithfulness in keeping your commandments. Any questions, comments on forgiveness and cleansing? We'll keep going. Mercy and grace in the time of need. Not only does he cleanse us and forgive us of our unrighteousness, but he also gives us what we need specifically in the time of need. Look at Hebrews 4.16. And we'll actually start in verse 14. We'll get just a little bit of a running start. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is that great high priest? Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Then the promise, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive. It's a done deal. When we draw to the throne of grace with confidence, we may, we will, we, we will find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Well, what a wonderful promise. What a wonderful reality for the Christian. God understands our weaknesses. He understands our temptations. Jesus himself, is, as our high priest, was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He, he withstood every temptation. And I've heard it described this way. It's like a, like a tree in a tornado or a fierce windstorm or a hurricane that feels the force of the wind. And there may be multiple trees, and some of those trees are uprooted and give in to the force of the wind. But there's one tree that's roots are so deep and its base is so strong that that windstorm presses through, that tornado passes through and then moves on, and that tree is not shook. It remains rooted. All the other trees were uprooted but one. Which tree felt the intensity of that wind fiercest? most. Well, the one that stood firm the whole time. All of the force of that wind persisted, and yet it endured to the very end. That's Jesus. All of the force of temptation, every way, every intensity of temptation, Jesus endured. And to the, to the ultimate degree, why? Because he never gave in as fierce as temptation could be, Jesus felt it, and he never gave in. We give in much sooner. We have given in to temptation repetitively much sooner. And yet Jesus, feeling the full degree of temptation, tempted in every way, did not sin. And so as we come to the throne of grace, the throne that is characterized by grace, or the throne where grace is found, or the throne where we interact with the giver of grace, the God of grace, we f the, the, the throne where free gifts of divine favor and compassion are found, let us draw near with confidence and we will find mercy and grace to help us in the time of need. When you are at your wit's end, you, there is mercy and grace for you, divine favor and kindness to help you withstand that temptation. What a wonderful reality. Uh, this is similar to what we looked at last time in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that with the, way, with the temptation, there is a way of escape for the believer. And not only is there a way of escape, but there's divine assistance to take it. Think about that. You, you don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work your way out of your own sinful tendencies. If you draw near to the Lord, if you draw near to the throne of grace, if you draw near to the one who sits on that throne in humble dependence and worship, you can have confidence that he will grant to you mercy and grace in your time of need. And he does this intimately and lovingly. He understands you might navigate circumstances in this life. Uh, no temptation is common to man, is uncommon to man. They're, they're all the same kinds of doubts, same kinds of struggles, same kinds of disbelief, same kinds of idols. We all sin in various ways similarly, but our life circumstances may look different. You might be going through something that nobody else at Gilbert Bible Church has gone through circumstantially. And yet the temptations that you're facing, Jesus was tempted in every way and yet came out victorious. And 
wants to aid you in being victorious over those temptations as well. Every potential for doubt, for disbelief, for sin, everyone. Jesus understands and he is eager to grant to his children help in the time of need. How wonderful. Questions, comments on that one? Ladies are too, too easy. Yes. Hmm. That's a great question. I don't think you're alone in that, but I want to understand what you mean by that better. Are you exhausted in life's circumstances? Like, man, I'm just weary. Are you exhausted? Like, I want to, I don't want to keep coming to God again and again. (laughs) Tired of needing to go to him again? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I don't know. I'd, I'd love to hear from you, ladies. Does anybody experience something along those lines? How do you shepherd your heart? in that moment? How do you think you should shepherd your heart in in that moment? You're not crazy. I, th- I think all of us, <laughs> I think all of us relate to that and feel weariness uh, in life. There's just an element of, of life can be full, it can be hard, it can be difficult. We have to navigate unmet expectations, seasons of less sleep, more sleep, physical ailments, no physical ailments. I mean, there's, there's just a lot that we have to navigate. Jesus understands the weariness that comes to an individual living in a sin-filled, sin-laden world. Even to the point that in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And so I think it's helpful in those moments where we're like, I got to come to him again. I feel, I know that what will help me is coming to Christ. And 
confessing sin and praying and seeking his help. And yet I'm so exhausted right now at how many times I've already had to come to him that I feel a weariness and I just, I don't even know what to do. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't even know what to do. It's hard to even come to Christ and I know I should. And then I feel bad for not coming to Christ like I know I should because I feel tired. And yet I think what's really helpful is if Jesus says, come to him, he's trustworthy. And the rest that he promises is not an eight-hour night of rest, which I know you have not had for a while because of your precious little one. That's, what's that? <laughs> that eight hours in a week. That's right. Yeah. I, I, and, and listen, uh, Stephen and I had coffee, and I'm like, man, we actually said that. Man, if I didn't get a full night of sleep for a week, I'd be crying constantly, much less a year. Like, like I'd be an emotional wreck. You're doing well. You are doing so well. And yet those moments of weakness to recognize, okay, I need to fight what I feel. What, what you just said, Proverbs 3, I need to not trust in myself, not trust in my own understanding, acknowledge God, come to him humbly, dependently. He will give me what I need. He'll make my way straight. He'll, he'll make my path straight. If I come to you, Jesus says, come, come to me, you who are weary leaven, weary leaven, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The true rest that I need for my soul, maybe not the physical rest that I long for right now in my, in my tiredness, but the true rest I need for my soul will be found in Jesus. And so you fight what you feel with what you know. That's a, that's a common term in the Kelso household. Fight what you feel with what you know. Um, hard's not bad. What's right? It's hard to come to Jesus. That, that doesn't mean we don't. Lots of things are hard. If we only did what was easy, life would only get exponentially harder. The path to rest is through hard denying yourself. Jesus says, if anybody's going to come after me, he must deny himself daily, pick up his cross and follow me. Um, and yet that's what God calls. And then uh, something that's really helpful for me in those moments where I feel like I know what God calls me to do. It feels hard. Doing what is right is hard. Well, a really helpful passage is 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 3. John says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Whatever instruction that is before me from God's word that feels hard, the hardness of keeping God's commandments is not rooted in God or in the commandments it's itself. What makes coming to God for the hundredth time in a day seeking him for help is not because God is a hard God to come to. <laughs> it's not because he's going to bring reproach. And you know this, but it's because of our own sin. What makes keeping God's commandments hard is us, not the commandments. The, the commandments are, are actually a reprieve and restful and good and comforting for the soul. So my encouragement to you is just keep coming to him. And something that can be particularly helpful is if you know areas of weakness and areas of doubt or areas of struggle that you find yourself repeating back into, let's say, let's say you struggle with gentle speech 
edifying speech to go, okay, I know I struggle with this. I'm going to take Ephesians 4.29. I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to write a note card. I'm going to keep it on me under these circumstances where I see myself most prone to not have my words be full of grace and edifying to those who hear so that I can remind myself of God's desire for me and what's pleasing to him in that moment of weakness. If you find yourself having a hard time coming to him when you should, you know, maybe you write James 1, 5 down on a note card and remind yourself, man, when I lack wisdom, when I lack perspective, when I'm weary or faint-hearted, God loves to give me what I need. He loves to give me wisdom, and he does it without reproach. And so when I feel disheartened at the fact that I've had to come to him a hundred times, I can find comfort knowing that he's not disheartened that I had to come to him a hundred times. He wants me to keep coming to him. Any other thoughts, suggestions, comments? That's a great, great, very real, very practical issue that uh, I think we all, we all benefit from the fact that you asked that question. Thank you. All right. Well, we got through even less than with the mid. I talked too much. <laughs> it's not your fault. You guys did great. It's, it's my fault. Uh, we are going to stop there and we will, um, we will break for, uh, so that you guys can have time in your groups for the last one of the semester. What did she say? <laughs> you want to keep going? Okay, I, we'll, we'll do summary. We'll do, we'll do summary of the, net, of the last ones. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That's, uh, that's our next one, that he will make your paths straight. And, and that's, we, we just talked about that some, that we're called to trust in the Lord. This, this is such a helpful promise because oftentimes we want to get what we want through our means of reason. This is how it should be. I want it to go this way. And we trust ourselves, trust in our own self. If you listen to the radio, listen to a podcast, read on the internet, watch a TV show, the overwhelming message of our culture and, and of those who don't know the Lord is look to yourself and trust yourself. Trust in yourself. And Proverbs 3.5 says, don't trust yourself. Be the biggest suspect of yourself, which is not natural. Naturally, we trust ourselves, our perception, our conclusion, our interpretation, our understanding. And we put everybody else on trial in our hearts, including God. What do you really mean by that? What, why do you think that's right? I don't think that's, you have wrong intentions. You have wrong motives. You're selfish. You're not, you know, we can be suspect of everybody else's, including God's intention and purpose and elevate and trust our own reasoning and assessment of the circumstance. And God tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, don't trust yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge God and trust yourself to him. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Recognize God's supremacy and his sovereignty and his character and his nature. Acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. What does that mean? He'll show you what direction you should go. This is so helpful. Oftentimes we find ourselves faced with various de decisions. Um, what should I do? What should I cook for dinner? 
What should I, uh, what school should our kids go to? How should I work? Should I not work? Should I do this? Should I do that? All these different decisions that we can get consumed and go, God, what's your will for my life? And we miss that frequently what's more important than two various good options is what kind of person were you in the process of making that decision? Were you one who was leaning on your own understanding, your own priorities, your own wisdom, or were you trusting the Lord in that process? And so coming to the Lord in the midst of life's various circumstances, in the midst of life's various situations, uh, maybe you're at odds with a sister in Christ, and you're convinced of something, and you're convinced that you're vindicated in the situation. You go, okay, wait, I need to step back. What does God actually say he desires of me? What, what is God's assessment of this circumstance? What's God's assessment of me? I need to acknowledge his presence. I need to acknowledge what, what he has written, what is true. And then, listen, your ability to navigate that circumstance in godliness, God will make your path straight. He'll show you which way to go as you acknowledge him and entrust yourself to him and look away from yourself. We know that the heart of man is deceitful, turns away from God. Uh, Jeremiah 17.5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Uh, that's the contrast to the one who trusts in the Lord with their, own, with their whole heart. Acknowledge him in all your ways. Acknowledge or know him. We're to always and in every one of our ways take into account the Lord and his presence. To acknowledge him is to know him. In each step we take, we are to take, making sure that in each step we recognize God's presence and are seeking God's direction. All right, we've got like four more pages on that one, but any other questions? <laughs> Seriously, that was like the one that I may have had the most notes on. We'll, we'll stop there on that one, unless you have any questions. Okay. Christ will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. I will never desert you, the second half of it says, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Here we see Christian, the Christian's conduct and, and behavior is one where we can have a confidence that the Lord is a helper for us. He will not leave you or forsake you in your pursuit of godliness or in your despair or in your trials. And so in those moments where you're weary, where you're disheartened, ah, man, I got to come to him again. How sweet is it to remember God's not going to leave me. All of my weariness, all of my heartache, all of my difficulty, all of my trials, all of my disbelief, all of my struggles, he's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. And we can confidently say that the Lord is our helper in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. The Lord is our helper. Just think about that. When, when you have a hard time persevering, when, when you're struggling, fighting your sin, to know You've got divine assistance available to you at all times. The Lord is near. He loves to help his children. And then lastly, the Christian security. And this is from John 10, where we see Jesus as the good shepherd. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He also goes to say, and they are my father's and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. There is a certainty that every true sheep will never be snatched out of Jesus' hand. You cannot undo your genuine salvation. If you are a believer, you are saved. And Paul echoes this sentiment in Romans 8, 38 and 39, where he says, for I'm convinced. He, it's a done deal. It is certain in his mind. He wholly believes that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, for the Christian, God has divine intention in the promise of the Christian security that aids you in your personal godliness today. Your ability to persist and persevere and endure and renew your mind with the truth that, man, though I'm unfaithful, God is faithful. I can't undo the work of Christ. Think about that. You cannot undo the rebirth. You can't outsin God's grace. Jesus has a 100% track record positive track record of keeping every single one that has been entrusted into his care. And, and again, when you're struggling to find the strength within yourself, you can have comfort that you're not ultimately dependent upon the strength within yourself. You are sealed through divine strength into the household of God. You're a child of God. And all of these promises, all of these realities should just, should just catapult us into thankful worship because we don't deserve one ounce of the goodness that the Lord has shown to us. That the God of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, the pure, unblemished, holy, holy, holy one who simply spoke, and we've talked about this before, he spoke and what didn't exist yielded to his divine power and came into existence and obeyed him. That's God eternally existing and he loves us <laughs> and makes promises. He owes us nothing and he makes, pro he binds himself to these realities rooted in his own character out of love for us. It's just so amazing. It's such a privilege to be a child of God and to get to follow him and such a comfort to know that even our following of him isn't ultimately dependent on what we can conjure up in and of ourselves. It's because he's given us what we need. So we actually can have hope and confidence. All right, we did it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for these wonderful promises. I pray that your intended uh, desire for the effect that your promises would have on our lives would come to fruition and that we would um, not be found useless, uh, but Lord, that we would be useful vessels for your purposes, that we would persevere and endure under your grace, that we would grow more and more into the likeness of our Savior. And Lord, in all of these things, as we contemplate your promises and we talk and pursue personal godliness, I pray that all of these things would be rooted and grounded in an insatiable love for our Savior Jesus, that we truly would love him 
above all else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.